are listening to Ethnic Life Story, Trail of Trees, Episode 9, Hyman Lotvin. Life Story Trail of Trees is a tribute project started by Springfield businessman Jim Malden in the early 2000s. Then, more than a decade later, the project reached Friends of the Garden at Nathaniel Green Close Memorial Park in Springfield, Missouri. Black gum trees were planted in 2012 at the northern edge of the park and symbolized the legacy left by ethnic community leaders. Each tree stands for an Ozark citizen who has left a lasting positive impact on their community through service, generosity, and tenacity. Each story is maintained and immortalized by a story keeper who has volunteered to ensure the legacy of the storyteller lives on. is Hyman Frank Lotvin. My name never changed from Russia, except that most Jewish people do not have a middle name. I was born at home. There were no hospitals in Russia. There were midwives. The little town had a midwife who knew a lot about medicine. Most of the rabbis in Europe knew quite a bit about medicine. Since there were no professional doctors in those towns, the rabbis would know enough about it to give cures and so on. I was the last child that my mother had out of six children. There were four brothers and two sisters. My mother was Jenny Lotvin, who was born April 1881. Both of my parents were raised in a little Jewish town in Russia. My mother lost her mother, Rozva, when she was quite young. There were three sisters. There was Roshk, Jenny, and Esther. We lost Roshk and her family during the Holocaust, the whole family. When the Bolshevik Revolution came in, they went through all of the houses and anything made of metal they would take, because they needed it for the war effort. Knowing that they would come to take my mother's candlesticks, which were pure copper, she took them and buried them in the ground. They were a gift from her mother-in-law. When she buried them in the ground, they came apart. In order to tighten them up, she took the material from her dress and put them in the screws. They were buried. After the war, knowing where they were buried, they were digging up places where they thought things were hid. When they got those candlesticks, my mother claimed they were hers. They had to prove whatever the value was. There was no problem. My mom went and got the dress that she tore when she took the candlesticks apart, and the print was the same. She buried the candlesticks, my dad's prayer shawl, and also my dad's Bible. That's three things she brought with her when she came to the United States. My mother had the wisdom of Solomon because she was left with five children in Europe and had to take care of them. There were six at first. My oldest sister, Dad got her to the United States first. When Mother came to the United States, my dad worked seven days a week. After we bought the house, you can imagine how careful my mother had to be with money. Food was an item that had to be taken care of. There was no surplus. Also, we started getting married. My oldest sister got married, and she was only married about a year. She met a fellow in New York, and it didn't turn out good. She had a six-month-old baby at the time. She came back to Springfield to live with my dad. Here we come with five more children. He's got five children of his own, and he's got his oldest daughter with a baby. How careful do you have to be? 
My mother had the wisdom of how to deal with people. Any woman who has four daughters-in-law and two sons-in-law that thought the world of her must be a magician. She was a very reserved and quiet person. Where she got all that wisdom, I don't know. When my wife came here, she never met her in-laws. The minute she walked into the house, within three days, she felt at home. Whatever little they had, they shared with her. My mother, believe me, didn't have any kind of money. But when my wife didn't have any clothes on her back when she came here, my mother took her out shopping immediately. She said, Mother, I know you don't have that much money. She told her, I know, but whatever we have, we are going to share. When my dad got sick, the relationship between my parents and my wife was unbelievable. Whenever we went out and got dressed up, she always went downstairs and showed my parents. When my dad was sick, she went to go visit her parents in France. When she left, my dad said, I'm going to live to see her again. He died five months after she came back. Unfortunately, you see, this is something we have lost, this closeness. My dad's name was Israel Mitchell Latvin. He was born July 1881. I didn't know my dad until I came to the United States. My dad came out of the Russian army under the Tsar in 1905. Don't forget the Bolshevik Revolution was there. We lived in a small Jewish town by the name of Rosbach, and I was just a month old when he left. My dad made shoes by hand. He couldn't feed his family. He couldn't make a living. Back in those days, America was the land of gold. Back many years ago, according to history, if you come to the United States, you just get a rake and shovel for gold. Any man who was willing to work could make a living. My aunt's husband was here already. He wrote to Dad and told him that with his art, he could come to the United States and make a living. So what choice did he have? He didn't have any money. Roshk sold some of her furniture to get 50 rubles to send my dad to America. That's all she had, and she loaned it to my dad. He went to Germany and got on a boat to go to the United States, because then you didn't need any passports or papers. All you had to do was reach the shores. He got on a boat to go to the United States, thinking that the boat would land in New York, Ellis Island. Instead of that, he got on a boat that was going to Galveston, Texas. The United States got so they wanted to divert some of the immigrants, so that not everybody went to New York. When he got to Galveston, they had a Jewish organization, the HIAS, which stands for the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society. They would take the Jewish immigrants and say, what is your trade? When they interviewed him, he said he made shoes by hand, saddles, and so forth. They told him that there was a man in Springfield, Missouri, looking for two mechanics just like that. He came here in 1912, and he and a fellow by the name of Mr. Sussman started working for this man. Bookman was his name. After he had worked for him for a while, since Pitcher, Oklahoma, and Joplin was more prosperous than Springfield on account of the lead mines, Mr. Bookman left the store. Oscar Bloom at that time had a big wholesale house of shoemaking supplies, machinery, and so forth. Shoemaking was quite a business back at that time, so Oscar Bloom told my dad, who was a real good mechanic, here's what you should do. I'll help you take the store over, buy what little machinery you had, and I'll give you the credit for the supplies you need, and you can pay me back as you work. So he did. Now, when World War I broke out, Dad never knew what happened to us. There was no relationship between the United States and Russia at the time. He didn't know what happened to his family. He couldn't help us any. There was no mail service or anything. Our house back in Russia had one room. We had a stove in the corner, 
and in the summertime all us kids used to go through the woods and pick up all the sticks that were left behind, and we would pile it up so that we would have wood to burn when it got cold. We didn't have beds, just platforms. In fact, a lot of the times we would sleep on top of the big stove, which was made of brick. We had straw mattresses. Potatoes, carrots, and cabbages could be put away in the straw so that there would be something to eat in the winter. We did not have money to buy regular meat, so we would get a little meat from the butcher, whatever was left over. It didn't make any difference what they gave us. Mother would make a meal out of it. Nothing was wasted. This stays with you. Our clothing was rags, not clothing. We had shoes. We would put a rag around our feet in the wintertime, and then the shoes. We lived in a town where only Yiddish was spoken. I didn't know any Russian. My Yiddish is all mixed up with my English. When I met Regine, I only spoke two words of French. My Yiddish was a little different than hers. I can understand Yiddish more than I can speak it. I've been to Israel many times. The old generation in Israel speak Yiddish. The young generation all speak English. When I go to Israel and start using it, it all comes back. It had been years since I had spoke it. I have to think, and if I'm not careful, my mind switches over to English. Being five children in Russia and a father in America who could not help us, any time we had a meal, we would go to different houses. Mother couldn't support us, so the town used to feed us. Every day, someone would give us a meal. We were assigned to different houses. I can remember to this day, and I was only about six years old, I would go to this house and sit on the steps while they were having their meal. Whatever little food they had left, they would give it to me, or sometimes they would bring it out to me and set it on the step. Until we got to Poland, we lived a very rough life, from hunger and everything else. My best experience was when we got to Poland. After we were smuggled there, we got to have three meals a day. You don't have to wait on the steps as a child until the people have something left, and if they didn't, I got nothing. People don't understand hunger. We were really excited to get out of what we were leaving behind. Once I got out of Russia, I wasn't going back. All those people you see on TV when they are suffering from hunger, all they want is just a meal. Tell an American child that the most important thing in life is a meal. It's not a car. Try to tell them and see how far you get. They've never been hungry. It's been a long time since I was hungry, and I've never forgotten it. In 1921, all of a sudden, a couple shows up in this little town in Russia, a man and wife. They were smugglers. My dad had sent money to the American embassy. The embassy knows the smugglers who smuggled the money into Russia. This man came to see Mother and to give her some money. When this couple showed up, they told us that in about a week, they would be back. You see, the Russians would let my mother and sister go but they wouldn't let the four boys go, because they were building the Bolshevik army. This couple told her that one of these nights they would come in and take us out of Rosba and take us to Warsaw. Well, they were professionals, so that's what happened. They came and put us all in a wagon. It was winter time. I was the youngest, and they let me ride in the wagon, but my three brothers walked through the cold water. They got us across the border into Poland. When we got into Poland, they had a place all ready where they could hide us in a little town there. All of us were in one room, but it was warm and we had food. After about another day and night, they came back. They couldn't transport us on the regular train because we were too close to the border, so they put us in a boxcar, like for freight, so no one would inspect it. When we arrived in Warsaw, they hid us that night. They were real professionals. 
The next day they took us and turned us over to the American embassy. Then we were home free because my dad was an American citizen. Then they put tags on us and we had to go through a physical. We were in Warsaw for about four or five weeks. Then the embassy put us on a boat for the United States. When we landed in New York, they sent us here to Springfield. Life was hard, but thank God I was very fortunate we survived. You could imagine what would have happened to us if we had stayed in Russia. I am fortunate that I came to this land. I was almost nine and a half years old when we settled in America. We went into the shop and started helping Dad. We helped him repair and shine shoes. Sunday, we'd put a stand out in front and people would walk by and we would shine their shoes. Would you believe I still have the brushes? I started school in September 1921 after I got to Springfield. We didn't go to school in Russia. All five of us started the first grade at Baylor School. We were one of the very first families in here of foreign birth as children. The teachers were very kind to us, even though we didn't know English. After we started going to school, we had some problems with some of the students, especially boys. They would call us little Jew boys. So we decided all four of us would always go to school and come home together. The boys found out that if they picked on one, they would have problems. It took a couple of fights to find out what they faced. We came from a rough life. When we went to Campbell School, Mrs. Colley, the principal, told them, Those kids are from Europe. They speak very little English, and we are going to do everything we can to teach them. We had no problem. I was ten years old when I came here, and we didn't have much of a teenage life because we went to work. I worked when I was ten years old right after I got here. I got a job with a biscuit company on Walter Street, sweeping the floor after school. One reason was for the little money they gave me, and second was that if there was a package of crackers or cookies that were broken, they couldn't sell it, and they would give me it. All my dad could provide for was food and shelter. I wanted a bicycle, so naturally I would have to save to get one. In high school, I was a shoemaker. I would help dad with a pair of shoes. When I graduated in January of 1933, this was the bottom of the Depression. My dad wanted me to stay and get a trade. I told my dad I was definitely not going to be a shoemaker. Dad said, well, how are you going to find a job whenever grown men can't find a job? I did find a job on the square, the Vanity Shoe Store, to sell shoes, and I was a fairly good salesman. I worked there about nine months until the manager wanted to leave, and they made me manager. On Sundays, Missouri used to have the Fruit Belt League. We'd play baseball in all the little towns like Bolivar and Ozark. This was a big Sunday deal. That's the only relaxation I had, and I got to be pretty good as a ball player. Walking or streetcar was the primary transportation when I was young. I used to walk from 816 State Street to Central High School, about two and a half miles. Now, if you live a mile away from school, they pick you up on the bus. I used to have a lot of fun. I used to go to dances and everything, but it never interfered with my living. The dances were at Half a Hill and the Shrine Mosque. Half a Hill was real famous. All the old-timers will remember Half a Hill. It was on Battlefield and Lone Pine. The school had very little activity, as far as dancing was concerned. Back in those days, Dr. French used to be a teacher at Central High School. They fired him because hygiene was just to wash your hands. He said hygiene is not that, that you have to teach the girls and boys about sex. Back in those days, condoms used to be hidden in the drugstore. What you see on TV today, if it's good or bad, I'm no judge. But if you don't think you had little girls getting pregnant back in those days, you did. It was just hidden. 
Little girls are taught that there is such a thing as getting pregnant, and little boys are taught that there is such a thing as venereal disease. Mr. French, I'll never forget. They fired him because he wanted to change the system of teaching hygiene. The old saying is, I know what the devil will do, so I guard myself against it. But those saints, be careful of those saints. Be careful of anyone that is perfect, those you have to watch. Frisco Railroad used to be the biggest thing in Springfield. So Wool Shoe Company, out of St. Louis, opened a shoe store on the square in the Holland building of January 1933. When they opened that store, they sent a man by the name of Cher from St. Louis to manage it. He was hiring salespeople who only worked on commission. I went up there and applied for a job. He was Jewish, and I was Jewish too, so that helped a little bit. He said to come in and work on Saturday. That's when you waited on people. I came in and worked Saturday. I outsold everybody. I had a little experience because I was selling shoes for Dad. About nine months went by, and this fellow Cher wanted to go back to St. Louis. He said, I think he can do a better job than I can. So I took over managing the store. Wool Shoe Company had two places in town. One was Netter's. They had the high-priced shoes, and then I had the cheap shoes at two or three dollars. I did pretty good until Pearl Harbor came along. They gave me a week to go into the army. I had no choice. When I came back out of the army, they were supposed to give me my job back. They told me they would rather I came to St. Louis to work in the office. So I did. Mr. Wool was the owner of the company. If you go to St. Louis, this man's name will be on Barnes Hospital, a Jewish hospital. He was one of the finest men in the world. He taught me more about business than a professor could. So Regine and I went to St. Louis. I didn't think I would stay there. But look, it was a good job. We went up there and lived with my sister to see what we were going to do. I was there about two weeks when I talked to Mr. Wool and told him I really appreciated it, but I couldn't sit behind a desk for eight hours. I just couldn't do it. I think I'm making a mistake. So I called up my dad. And it isn't easy to give up on a job when you don't have nothing. Dad said, come home. You've got a place to live. I do not believe in war movies. Not long ago, we had a neighbor invite us over to the house, and one of the young men said to me, Mr. Lotvin, Saving Private Ryan, you definitely ought to see this movie. It's the most wonderful movie in the world. I told him I didn't have to see the movie, because in the movie they were shooting blanks, and in the real war they are shooting bullets. Regardless of who wins the war, there is no glory in it. When a man is a hero in the war, he is not given a choice to do what he is to do. Now if you say you've got a choice to commit this heroic deed or you can go home, then there wouldn't be any heroes. You are a hero because you have no choice. Also, at times during hardships, especially when you are an adult, life is not that important anymore. In war, you see how many people are killed, are lost, and it gets to a point where dying is not feared. It could be a blessing. So let's quit glorifying war movies. There's nothing to glorify, period. There were two brothers that went to war, me and Isidore. We went to war right after Pearl Harbor. We were shipped out of camp in a company of 250 men. We were on a French boat. The boat went so fast and zigzagged so that no torpedoes could hit it. We landed in Casablanca. There were about 5,000 troops on that boat. It was early in the war, real early. Regine and I didn't have anything to make a wedding with. We were in France right after the war. 
We didn't have a chupa, which is a wedding canopy, so we took a prayer shawl and had four people hold the end of it. We had the army kitchen bake the cakes. We were in an old synagogue that had survived the war. After we were married, it was on a Tuesday, and I wanted to buy her some flowers. All the flower stores were closed on Tuesday. We went by a grocery store, and she saw some nice radishes. So we bought a package of radishes. People got married in the Jewish faith at around 19, 20, 21, or 22. Back in my grandparents' days, there was a matchmaker. During my dad and mom's time, that system had changed. They did not believe in a matchmaker, like in Fiddler on the Roof. In Judaism, you have the Orthodox, the Conservative, the Reform, and the Traditionals. If I hadn't met my wife in the way I did and everything, my brother Isidore and I would probably have been bachelors. No question about it. There were very few Jewish girls here. The most important things in my life are one, to keep my family together, two, to my work, and three, to my synagogue. We found out that when my brother and I got out of the army in 1946, the Orthodox and the Reforms were still fighting a civil war here. The two groups were both Jewish. Like in Ireland, they are all Christians, but they are still killing each other. With only 48 or 49 members, we realized that unless we got together, we wouldn't survive. I identify with Isidore the most. We've been together all of our lives. I had a great admiration for my mother. If it hadn't been for my mother, I would not have stayed in Springfield. I was very much tied to her. Rules in the house was that we maintain the kosher tradition. If we eat meat, it will be six hours before we eat dairy. Now fish, it can't be lobster, can't be shrimp. It's got to have scales and fins. Not catfish, because catfish have no scales. Also, the fish has to come from a clear water lake. Catfish can live in anything. And oysters, we can't eat oysters. My wife does not maintain this when she goes out with people, but I do. We celebrate all the Jewish holidays and all the American holidays. We're just like everybody else. In Judaism, you celebrate things in a wild lifestyle. My niece's wedding started on a Saturday night, went into Sunday, through Monday, and into Tuesday. A Jewish wedding is something else. In Judaism, the rabbi doesn't marry you. The law says legally you must have a rabbi or a judge or an official. But according to Judaism, you marry each other in front of three witnesses. You pledge your love and your future to each other. The unexpected turns in my life, besides Regina, was that I was very fortunate that the only time I ever applied for a job was when I got out of high school. I have come from a shoemaker, shoe business, general merchandising, drugstore, and SMS. I never applied for any of those jobs. Every one of them was offered to me. Why I became an expert in so many fields, don't ask me. I had the knack of going into a business and visualizing what it really needed, regardless of what the business was. The main thing that I basically miss in my life is my work. I have always enjoyed my work. I enjoyed going to work and I enjoyed what I did with my life. There is only one thing that I would have done different. I would have tried to get a little bit of what I call formal education, which unfortunately I did not get. I'm not saying schooling is the answer to life, but if I had proper schooling, my work would have been easier. Number two, the main thing that I miss is that Regine and I have unfortunately lost our first child many years ago. However, we never had an empty house. We always had my nephews or people from Israel or friends that we accumulated. We had a lot of young people with us. As I look back on my life, the happiest days of my life are spent at SMS. 
Just imagine coming to work and seeing nothing but young people, instead of what I used to face with the market and the problems with the stores and the complaints. So I guess I am a wealthy man more than I think I am. My mission in life is very simple. Make a living, keep my family together, be honest, basically have a goal in mind, live a very clear conscience when I go to bed, and don't be persuaded by money. One thing, it is a livelihood. Second, to sell your life for money, for your future and your family and your friends, is not the answer. Not bragging, but I think I've succeeded. My family to this day are still talking to each other. I think I got that from my mother. My mother had four daughters-in-law that thought the world of her. I wish future generations the best of luck and try to keep from destroying themselves. The home is all tore to hell now because people have put their comfort and their want ahead of home life. There is no home connection anymore. Prosperity will destroy you. Rome did not fall from hardships. It fell from prosperity. Since World War II, the whole system of livelihood has changed. The man made the living, the wife stayed at home, and took care of the kids. Now the kids have to take care of the parents. I know that's a problem, but the answer I don't have. There's a 52% divorce rate now. It is a difficult thing to correct. It's not a machine, you can't just fix it. The only thing I could tell the Springfield community when somebody comes here, regardless if they're black, white, or turquoise, is that they be given the same welcome as they do their own. Practice, don't preach. You know what the devil is gonna do, but be careful of the saints. Watch out for purity. Anybody that tells you they are pure and that they have the answer, be careful. They are just leading you to problems. That's the only advice I can give them. edited version of Lotvin's story. You can read each story in its entirety at thelibrary.org or by clicking the link in the description of this post. The story keeper for Hyman Lotvin is Mary Byrne. Music is Bach Cello Suite No. 3 in C Major by Colin Carr at freemusicarchive.org under an attribution, non-commercial, no derivative, 3.0 United States license. Story excerpts edited and read by Diana Dudenhafer. Mm-hmm.